0: But first there's over 280 wildfires raging across the province and many communities are asking themselves what they could have done better. Are there ways to prevent fires? And the short answer is yes, but it's much more complicated to implement fire prevention strategies, especially in smaller communities that sometimes lack funds and public buy-in from citizens. We're joined now by Merlin Blackwell. He's the mayor of Clearwater to talk about what it's been like to push fire prevention strategies in, in strategies in his community. Mayor Blackwell, good morning. Good morning, George. Glad to be on. Yeah, it's great. So how, I'm, it's first question, obviously, is how tense Has it been up there for you this year and your fellow mayors uh, in the fire prone areas?
1: Well, you know, as a mayor in the TNRD area, which also includes Lytton and Ashcroft and places like that, which are in Spencer's Bridge, that have been under constant threat of wildfire for pretty much a month, and, and we all know the story of Lytton at this particular point. This has pretty bit much been the most stressful summer I think most of us could could have experienced, and and that's saying something after the you know the 2003 mm-hmm. fire, the 2017 eighteen fire season. So yeah, we're all pretty much on edge for sure.
0: How much do you? Cur- currently describe your current preparation for this now out of 3 out of 5 years we've had smoke we've had fire how are you preparing currently for this this now very what seems predictable situation
1: we do the best we can with what we've got so there's the 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 inside the organization level which is volunteer fire department, a lot of small communities like ours, you're going to find out have what's called a bush truck. Mm-hmm. And this is basically uh, the the local fire department equivalent of what D.C. Wildfire Services uses for fighting wildfires, interface fires. You know, it's equipped with water pumps, a lot of chainsaws, things like that that are outdoor equipment. On on a bigger scale, and, and this is the challenge with small communities, with small budgets, we Go for a lot of things like grants from Forest Enhancement Society of BC, from uh, UBCM, mm-hmm. to remove wildfire fuel, basically shrubs, bushes, and trees from around our communities, okay. a- a- as a long-term strategy to reduce the risk of climate-caused wildfires. Um, and then there's a further level to it. We partner. We're a fortunate community here. We have the Wells Gray Community Forest. Um, that is a 10-year based, a land-based area around part of Clearwater. A lot of small towns have them now. Every small town that lives in the in the bush needs to have one, and they selectively log. Um, and remove wildfire fuel around town as well as part of sort of their management of local forests. And and community forests are a big player in this now um, Mm -hmm. for towns like ours, for sure.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the issue is there's fire prevention and then there's, you know, you know, planning for the worst and 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 doing that kind of stuff but how much of a it sounds like some of the money that you're getting is very unpredictable it's grants it's this it's that it's not something you can say oh here's my line item in the budget this is what we're gonna do every year it's predictable it doesn't seem like that to me
1: what's what's becoming predictable is the fact that we're going to have a wildfire season at least one out of every three years if not more Mm -hmm. um you know two out of every five is the stat i'm hearing so You know, the conversation I've had the last few days is exactly what you're talking about, George, and that is how do we make this a predictable budget item Mm -hmm. um, the same way that we do fighting wildfires? And the comment that I had from a professional last night is it has to be a one-for-one. One dollar budgeted for wildfire prevention for every dollar we budget for wildfire fighting. Um, And and it might have to be more than that. That, that Currently, that would put it about $125 million a year in BC that we kind of budget for wildfire fighting um but we may be up to a quarter of a billion dollars to get ahead of this because this is a man-made problem and it's in it's decades upon decades in the making
0: that's a weird way to put it because you think about okay let's use a micro example sprinklers in homes the cost is the cost you can't you know you want to prevent fires in your home put in sprinklers and put in smoke alarms there's a cost to that and that's what you do in order to stop to you know to pre-warn you that or solve the problem of the fires that then would to be so you'd save on the other end by creating these prevention tactics and paying for it in advance why wouldn't that be the logical process currently
1: well, I think it is and I think I think Lytton is a real uh, wake up call to mm-hmm. that I think I think it is now. I think okay. it's that way thinking. I think the other factor that most people aren't considering and and you know this if you live rural, especially if you have a log home where you live outside of a wildfire or a fire protection area that mm-hmm. you're not so you're not serviced by a, a, even a volunteer fire department, your insurance rates are considerably higher. If you can get insurance at all, I um there's so many things to do with preventing house fires and interface wildfire um, burns on neighborhoods that are driven now by in, in the insurance companies. And I, I have a feeling that if governments... Starts looking at that. Start, ...doesn't start getting in the direction of, of, of uh, doing that, the insurance companies are going to do it for us. Wow. They're going to basically tell us what we have to do moving forward. And, and we've hmm. already seen that on, on smaller scales with placement of fuel tanks around homes, um, content, how much of your house can be covered in wood? That's the latest thing that came up on my insurance questionnaire here in town. So... Uh, this is the direction, this is the future, we need to move that way.
0: You know, one of the arguments often is, hey, you know, we're seeing growth across the province in these communities, and, and as a result of that growth and these expansion of neighborhoods into what are fi- wildfire-prone areas, you get, this is the result, and so so be it, that's the way it goes. Uh, but I would argue, you know, maybe we should, th- because we're not going to stop that growth, or we can't, you know, we
1: can't stop that growth, so we need to look yeah. at the, the damage that is, you know, wh- how do we solve that problem? Well, there's a couple of things on that, George, and a really good point. Um, the first is, this is after 50 days of essential drought in Vancouver, this is no longer, in the lower mainland, this is no longer a rural issue. Um, this is your mm-hmm. entire North Shore. This is every cedar hedge that's planted against a house. Stanley in Park, whatever. Well, you know, even, even I grew up in Burnaby. I went to Burnaby yeah. Central. Me and Michael J. Fox dropped out of the same high school. We're, <laughs> we're heroes, right? So i I have a full understanding first twenty four years of my life growing up in communities down there. The risk of fires related to the same hazards we 're trying to remove around our rural homes exists in the lower mainland in many neighborhoods mm-hmm. It just you you just haven't had that risk because you're generally wetter than we are mm-hmm. um so that's part of it um The other part is you know. Most of the income of this province is generated through resources um, whether and through, through mm-hmm. industries like tourism. I did 30 years running Wells Gray Park or working in Wells Gray Park in mm-hmm. the tourism industry. 450,000 people a year came through there the last year before COVID. That's how money is generated in this park. It trickles mm-hmm. down through every economy, including the lower mainland economies. This affects everybody, either directly or indirectly through finances. It's It's a province-wide issue. It's a country-wide issue at this particular point. Which brings me to my next question. Obviously,
0: your uh, budgets—I think I think I read ten million. You know, Vancouver's budgets, yeah, one point six billion in Vancouver. So, taking you know five percent out of your budget to put to is impossible. It's like you'd have to not do anything. So, how do you get where do you get the money from? Then from a committed a commitment from the province, the feds, and how do you get that commitment?
1: Yeah, so, so at this particular point, I mean, uh, ten million is the best budget. I think uh, that got pulled out by the news uh, mm-hmm. because we had a lot of grants. Um, we had we had, okay. we had We generally run on between two point seven and three point five million for twenty four hundred people, uh, sixty nine kilometers of road, and a heck of a lot of infrastructure. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> paying the basics is, is a miracle, so we rely heavily on grants. Unfortunately, hmm. fortunately for the, for, the, for us, there's been some attention put to this through organizations like Forest Enhancement Society BC, and and it's out of funding. And I, you know, I don't know what the problem is with the current government. I don't know if they just don't like Forest Enhancement Society, if it's a creation of the last government. But hmm. we're in a situation where this is far, well and truly above partisan politics, and it's never been about partisan politics right. for me. Um, we we look to be having Consence. a federal government that's yeah. going to go on for a full term, and a provincial government that's going to be on in for a full term. There's a lot of time to get a lot of stuff done yeah. with with his, with grant funding to remove wildfire uh, fuels. Um, but we also need to make it part of the budget yeah, that goes on the election yeah. cycle. It yeah. has to be a ten year, twenty. Year. This is the beginning for the beginning of the real hit for rural BC. For climate change adaptation. This is the mm-hmm. future for the next 25 to 30 years. Let's start planning and budgeting these new models for the next 25 to 30 years. All
0: right, Mary Blackwell, thanks for joining me and filling me in. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. George Affleck and for Mike Smith. And I want to encourage you always call into our buzz line throughout the show, 604 331 2899. 604 331 2899 is the number. Give us your comments on our uh, stories that we're talking about. Before the break, we were speaking about uh, fire prevention in small towns. You know, uh, we heard from Mayor Blackwell before that break that uh, there's more that the provincial government could be doing differently to mitigate future fire seasons. Mike Morris is the official opposition critic for Public Safety and the Solicitor General. Uh, He's MLA for Prince George Mackenzie, and he joins me now. Hi, Mr. Morris. Good
2: morning, George. How are you doing?
0: Good. Thanks for joining me. I'm not sure you have a chance to hear uh, uh, Mayor Blackwell, but the main point he was making is, is predictable funding, that they, they, they are stretched. He's a town with a $10 million budget. Uh, he can't possibly fit in any kind of ongoing predictable mitigation strategies for his town, and his town is probably representative of most towns across this province. What, what, what can the province be doing better
2: uh, there there's a number of things that the province can be doing better. You know what uh, you know what has happened over the last seventy five years with uh, success of provincial governments have we've transitioned all the uh, the, the forest area in British Columbia into uh, of conifer plantations. So you know we have a, have thick stands densely. Planted conifers, uh, bereft of deciduous growth and whatnot, so we need to change that because it is—they're uh, uh, very susceptible to fire hazards uh, um, in the long term. But, in the short term, you know we have companies like Safeguard and Fort St. John that have these massive water delivery systems that they, they have available they can set up in communities uh, and even on a standby basis, they can be set up in some of these smaller communities if there 's adequate water supply close by to protect them from uh, from ongoing mm-hmm. wildfire threats uh, throughout the summer so there 's a number of things that can be done you know
0: we saw what happened in Lytton terrible whole town devastated gone, and you know we don 't want to see that happen again, but there're it's. I find it bizarre provincially that, and this was even when liberals were in power. That there was no, there's no predictable budget for firefighting. It's sort of like there's a small budget, and then you just kind of go, okay, that's the cost as a cost. But Mayor Blackwell and other mayors are talking about funding uh, for, so before the fires start that there needs to be more money set aside. How much money can we get into this budget to, to help these guys out and and make it predictable
2: for them? Yeah, you know that that's a that's a good question and predictable funding is something that our smaller communities do need and uh, several other organizations in the province. It's hard to uh, you know if you said you're going to put aside $400 million for firefighting, that's pretty much fence money. That goes into the firefighting budget and whatnot, and it's difficult under the provincial scheme of things to start transferring that money around uh, partway through the season. So, uh, you know, you dip into the contingency funds uh, for those kinds of things. But, uh, you know, I I think it's pretty clear, uh, you know, the direction that we've seen these fires take over the last few years now, um, that the province should be able to set aside some kind of predictable funding for these smaller communities to uh, establish, uh, you know, safeguards. Uh, put in, put in some of the firefighting equipment that they need, yeah. and uh, be prepared for the summers like we've seen in the last few years.
0: Well, he mentioned that. What's interesting was that there's this chat about firefighting and fire prevention, and that there has to be one for one. And, and you think, and I, I brought up the analogy of sprinklers in your home. Just an investment you need to make uh, into predictable ways of doing things. You know, you look at these communities. You live up in the up in the interior, up there north there. You know, small towns know their towns better than others. We see population growth. We know that small, you know, these communities, the growth is one of the reasons we're seeing uh, so much risk from fire. Um, And they know their areas better than anybody else. So why not uh, empower them as well and give them more predictable funding?
2: Yeah, no, you're right. We need to do that. The province has to take responsibility for this. Uh, You know, the province, the successive governments, like I said, have transitioned our forests into these conifer plantations, uh, heightened the risk of fire uh, as a result of that. So uh, there's a responsibility that goes with that as well. And most of these small communities have been force related communities now for several generations and, uh, you know, the transition has been uh, been massive uh, right. around Clearwater and some other areas here. So I think there is a provincial responsibility All right.
0: here. All right, Mr. Morris, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your thoughts on this. You bet, Joe. Take care. Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm George Affleck, in for Mike Smith. Hope you're doing well on this Thursday morning. So uh, there's no question that Vancouver needs more housing. It's something we talk about a lot in this city, and I think it gets talked about a lot across the region and across the country, for that matter. The problem is, with housing comes a need for a lot of infrastructure. You need a lot of stuff like sewer and water lines. And so, what are the challenges that face Vancouver as we develop areas of the city? Because we're you know we grow about five to six thousand uh, units or people per year in the city. Are we prepared for this? Uh, it looks like we may not be, and that's probably one of the reasons we don't see housing being built as fast. And Frances Beulah, who is Urban Issues and pol- political writer for Global Mail, wrote a column about this, and she joins me now. Hey, Frances. Hi, George. Thanks for joining me. Your column highlighted a challenge that, uh, you know, I think I, you may know, when I was in office, I always worried and talked about, you know, funding the basics, sewer and water. It's not sexy, but uh, we kind of need them. What, what has happened over the last 10 years that your column really highlighted?
3: Well, um, if you, you know, and this is not an issue a lot of people pay attention to when people are sort of talking about the problems of development, Mm -hmm. they've often talked about overloaded Canada line or too much traffic or whatever, Right, and um, uh, we don't think about uh, underground, uh, (sighs) and uh, it looks like from audits done by the, the city of Vancouver itself that you know, a system that people had talked about being replaced at a rate of 1% a year, it had kind of dropped to 0.6% or something like that. Uh, And Um, We didn't really notice it when a lot of development was happening downtown because the city replaced a lot of the sewers downtown because Mm -hmm. they were combining sewer and rainwater and dumping into Burrard Inlet and so on. Um, So a lot of that got replaced, and so new condo towers went up and they were able to hook into that new system, and we didn't really notice it. But as developers moved into those more single-family residential areas, like Oak Ridge, mm-hmm. has started to talk about the Nanaimo and 29th Avenue SkyTrain station, suddenly engineering said, hey, wait a minute, before you do that, those systems are already having problems because... Um, they have combined sewer systems mm-hmm. um, where climate change is producing really violent rainstorms. Um, every time that happens, um, the whole system, uh, you know, gets overloaded in those areas that still have combined sewer or, yeah, combined sewer and and stormwater. And you can't go ahead with this. So a lot of people who had bought property back in 2017, thinking that, um, the planner Gil kelly was about to start rezoning have been on hold since then uh, as engineering works out when can they upgrade these systems I think
0: people don't understand uh, how important engineering is. We talk a lot about planning in our city. We, mm-hmm. you know, we focus on that and with development and 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 in you know the, the pretty stuff, the stuff we can see mm-hmm. above the ground and the big buildings and, and, but the engineering department is is the largest in the city. It, and it not only you know it does garbage, it does sewers, it does water, it does sidewalks, roads. I mean, it manages almost everything that we see and we use every day. And I think that there's this under uh, appreciation and the connection between its relationship. Between and planning. Why? Why is that? Why don't people seem to make that connection and see the importance of it? Because it's not
3: sexy. I mean, it's not visible. Yeah. You know, um, like the head of engineering at the city said, "It there's this city underneath our feet that we never think about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unless there's a water main break or you know the part of the road sinks or something like that. But mostly. We've come to have this real faith that everything just keeps going and we can you know, it's uh, all the infrastructure that we need uh, is down there. And by the way I have to say, I've discovered it's not just Vancouver that has this problem. There was an excellent series done by reporter Stefan LeBay in the Tri City News about mm-hmm. Metro Vancouver's problems right. with this. You know, because there's a lot of development in Coquitlam, mm-hmm, Burquitlam, Uh, you know, Surrey, various places, and they're having not as much as in Vancouver, because we have one of the oldest sewer systems along with New Westminster, but, you know, problems as big development comes in on top of this climate change issue.
0: One of the things that your re- sewer replacement it comes so people understand there's an operating budget and then there's a capital budget. There's two mm-hmm. different budgets at any city government, and the ca- operating budget pays for the basic you know the stuff that you do every day. Capital pays for infrastructure like sewers and waters. In mm-hmm. Vancouver, over the last ten years, simultaneous to those numbers that you're talking about, where you've gone basically down fifty percent on sewer and water funding, uh, or per- as a percentage, uh, you've seen a lot of capital money, uh, moved mm-hmm. over to housing. Uh, so there's an irony that has that's created because they the move to put all that capital and money into housing has taken it away from the sewer and water, but you can't build the housing without the sewer and water. So you've created this, this oxymoronic <laughs> situation in Vancouver yeah. City. Yeah,
3: I mean, that's your analysis. I'd have to look <laughs> at that more closely because I think they did uh, create sort of new some new funding uh, sources for uh, to put into housing like they didn't just take it away from everything else necessarily um you know we can argue about yeah, that well they waived um, a lot
0: of dcls the development cost levies for a lot of rental housing And yeah. um, that money pays for uh but i think it, it does come you know it's not just about funding it's about uh attention and and right po- politics i think maybe because housing yeah, is such and a I hot think issue. That
3: there was, uh, a real focus on maybe other goals at the city, uh, you know, creating the greenest city, um, mm-hmm. uh, as you say, you know, putting money into housing, and maybe, you know, not quite enough attention paid to engineering. Because I mean, I understand that the engineers do go every year saying, hey, you know, <laughs> we really need this or the city's going to stop working. Mm-hmm. Uh, but something did change, and it's interesting because, as you know, we talked about this before, but a lot of people said, We don't really know how this decline in the engineering. Uh, funding for sewers and water mains declined because we didn't vote on it. Like it wasn't <laughs> something that came to council. It just kind of weirdly happened.
0: One, well, one of the challenges, I think, when you think about budgeting, and, and I'm curious to see what happens because the mayor has uh, put a, you know, a, a man, well I think the council have mandated a 5% max tax increase. Is that a mm-hmm. tax increase or budget increase for the next budget? Tax, tax yeah. increase. So property tax increase. But engineering relies on, uh, most of its fee- money comes from its operating money comes from uh, fees and services so if they get they they a big chunk like more than i think it's 80% of their budget comes from pay as you go kind of pro- process or mm-hmm. it doesn't come from property taxes and yet they're they're going to be asked like all departments to find ways to cut uh, their departments or to find that not increased by 5% more than 5% or whatever they're going to have to get find where that money but they have less of a part of the pie within their budget to find savings. And so Mm -hmm. it's going to continue potentially this challenge uh, for engineering to be, okay, well, the things we're going to cut are yeah. And I have to say, I
3: am a bit hopeful about the new city manager because I heard Paul Mokri say something to council sometime in the last two months where he said, you know, I don't think previous administrations were very good about telling you the extra work that would be created when you make a motion to do such and such. (laughs) Uh-huh. Uh, and so I think that probably someone like that is going to bring a very analytical eye to if you're approving this project and that project and you're doing Broadway plans and, and, and this and that, yeah. what do you need to put in to make sure that the infrastructure meets those needs? I I, I My sense is that, you know, there'll be more attention paid to that. Um, you know, that could be like a simplistic journalist, journalist <laughs> <laughs> take on it. But... Um, Okay, well, uh, I- and for sure, the engineering department is saying uh we need we know we need to start spending more. That's something we're really pushing for.
0: George Affleck in for Mike Smith and uh, Francis Buehler from the Global Mail uh, continues to uh, join me. We've been talking about, and she wrote a column in the Global Mail about this, uh, about what's under our feet, really, and how that has an impact on how we build our housing and how fast we can build our housing. And it, feel free to leave a message on our on our buzz line if you have any thoughts on this. 604-331-2899. 604-331-2899. Francis, one of the things that's interesting to me is you know, the budget. We talked a bit about the budget and how and housing has become a priority in the capital budget, you know, this city of Vancouver, and I think other cities are really being focused on housing, which they didn't used to be focused on. Vancouver alone has put, I think, aside a billion dollars over four years for housing. Do you think there's a chance, now that the federal government's sort of now putting their energy into housing, and the provincial government seems to be really interested in housing, and the city of Vancouver for a long time was kind of picking up the slack that wasn't being done by the federal and provincial governments, now that Governments are kind of more involved in housing that the city can sort of go, you know what, maybe we can extract some of that money that we'd set aside that we we can't even use and put it into things like sewer and water, sidewalks, roads, things like that.
3: Mm, That's interesting. I haven't heard anyone on council suggest that. (laughs) I might have missed it. But, I mean, for sure, uh, and I'm not, you know… Some people are looking at my story as, oh, we should halt all development, you know, which I never wanted here in Van- in, in mm-hmm. the city anyway. Like, that's, you know, there's a certain kind of um, anti-growth element or sure. anti-development element that's saying that. Uh, and they also would jump on that $1 billion that you talked about. Um, I mean, as much as many of us support housing, like it is... Uh, Uh, You know, especially if Vancouver is going to keep building office space, but, you know, uh, and uh, where are all those people going to go? If Mm -hmm. you don't build housing, they're just going to raise the prices of everything in the city. Uh, But I don't think Vancouverites really understand how much more they end up doing. You know, there's property that's set aside. Uh, mm-hmm. There is money that is put into special funds for housing that in other cities is used for, for other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think that people really get it because it's not a cost that they see on their tax bill necessarily. Right, it's not spelled um, out. It is money and property that is put into a special account that then isn't available. For other uses in the city, um, for sure, and it can be that can mean infrastructure, it can mean community centers, it can mean libraries, it can mean all yeah. kinds of things, and uh, You know that th- it's it's worth examining more um, because the city does do a lot and it doesn't show up in the tax bill, so people right. don't see it.
0: And the and the argument, I mean, one of the things, and I think Colleen, uh, you know, these Hardwick know, Hardwick talks about this that hey, we have all the zoned space for housing, we don't need to zone any more place for housing, and she's a little bit right on that. But the challenge as you're Colin points out is that if we can't build the stuff because of the infrastructure underneath us, then it's, it's mm-hmm. redundant. It doesn't really matter. And so moving that money into paying for those infrastructure, then we'll push forward the housing that we need that's already been pre-approved and any new housing. But This council, it seems like no matter what political party they're a part of, or even if they're independents, including the mayor, they all seem to put housing as a priority and it's something that they all say, we need more housing, we need more, more affordability, more housing, more affordability, and it's to make that leap into the less sexy, we need more more sewers and water. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And in an election year, is unlikely to to fly on this council.
3: No, for sure. I mean, people talk about housing constantly because they do know it's a big issue. I mean, there was just a poll that said that, you know, people, uh, the vast majority or, you know, some significant majority of people think that the NDP has done a bad job on housing, and that's not good news for them. Um, And any council that tries to come out as... Uh, you know not willing to sort of accommodate um, people moving here um, doesn 't do well that that might play in certain suburbs, um, but it doesn 't play very well here, uh, and you don 't ever see people explicitly coming out that way they 'll raise concerns or they 'll say there 's enough zoned capacity, as Colleen mm-hmm. Hardwick does, which of course no one believes is true like there have been studies done saying that a a city that has X amount of zoned capacity, I think less than 30%, maybe even less than 20% ever actually gets used. Because, well, in my area, like there's zoned capacity for duplexes. uh, Or or you don't see a ton of duplexes duplexes suddenly being built. Right. Like a lot of people are just sitting on on their uh, properties. They don't want to become developers. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not willing to go through all the hassle. That is happening even with, on commercial strips. I've seen it more than once happening that pe- that um, owners have cho- chosen, if they are rebuilding, just to rebuild at an easy one-storey retail rather than putting condos on top because it's such a hassle to go through the city process. So, yeah, there's a lot of zone capacity, and maybe 15% of it gets used.
0: But the thing is that I find challenging is that I don't hear uh this council uh talking about the solution that seems to be right in front of our face which is and and, and later we're going to be talking to Tristan Hopper your competitor on from the national post who's written a column about red tape yeah, I've these, that, yeah. and we sort of talk about red tape but the the strategy, like you look at red tape and what does that mean? And you've wrote you've written stuff about this about your experience with building a laneway house, getting things done in the city. You imagine if you're a developer wanting to build a duplex in your neighborhood, how challenging that might be. How do we speed up things? How do we make this work? And is it because you know the one component you wrote about today, this in this column about waters and sewers, is just one part of that whole problem of bureaucracy and red tape.
3: Right. And again, I mean, we do have a new um, city manager and director of planning who specifically, that is part of their mandate, uh, is to try and deal with some of that. And we're starting to see some reports come to council about how to streamline stuff. But Mm -hmm. there's a long way to go. I mean, you know, there's been a buildup of bureaucratic barnacles (laughs) (laughs) on the city of Mm -hmm. Vancouver for, for 50 years. You know, for 50 years in this city, we've acted as though um, we're doing any newcomers a favor by allowing them in, and we're only going to allow them in if their building looks really pretty and doesn't upset the current residents Mm -hmm. too much and, you know, um, and meets like, this new thing that we want to do about saving trees and that new thing we want to do about not disturbing the neighbors too much. And there's just been this accretion of stuff. I, it's someone who was trying to build a single family house on the east side uh, told me once there's like 97 touch points that you go through with separate staff members. 97. I, I'm making that number yeah. up, but it was definitely yeah, it feel, up. Yeah, it
0: feels like that. It feels like thousands potentially, and then you get a different answer sometimes from one staff person exactly. to another one. Which or
3: is. a staff member leaves, and then the next staff member says, "Well, whatever that person agreed to, you know, I don't. Uh, I'm not going along with that." So, so that's going to take a long time to scrape those barnacles away—a very long time—and you are starting to see a bit of a focus on it, um, but. I mean, realistically, like, look at this council. How can they have a coherent position on anything? <laughs> that's
0: that's for another conversation, Francis, uh, <laughs> because I think this next year with an election year, it's going to be even more jockeying for mm-hmm. position and, and not really getting much done. But thanks for joining me, uh, Francis. I really appreciate it. Well, uh,
3: yeah, and, and good luck with all the email that you'll probably get about <laughs> this. Because, you know, there are... 15 no 1100 uh, water breaks and about 100 uh, no uh, 100 water main failures and 1100 sewer servicing trouble okay, calls every it, year so it, you have a lot of listeners out, okay. who probably have personal experience with failures Thanks, of infrastructure. Francis.
0: George Aflickin for uh, Mike Smith. Very telling, telling music there. I think uh, you know the soon Vancouver's corpse flower, Uncle Fester, of course, who you may know Uncle Fester from the Adams family. I think it was. Uh, it will be drawing large crowds at the Coombsmith Parks uh, Bloedel Conservatory as it blooms for the second time ever. The corpse flower. Uh, I understand is really, really smelly, is, and, and it's quite beautiful apparently. But John Cooper, Park Board Commissioner and uh, NPA Mayoral candidate, uh, joins me now to talk a bit about Uncle Fester. Hey, John. Oh, good morning, George. So, okay, give me the backstory on this. How do the? I mean, because this is, I know that you were talking a lot about this. Was it three years ago? Two years ago? This thing doesn't come out very often. Give me the backstory on Uncle Fester.
1: Sure. So, Uncle Fester, or the Titanium Arum, which is the uh, M. Amphorphalus titanum, which is the uh, the the name for it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, this is an idea that uh, has been around for quite a while. In fact, when uh, we were working to save the conservatory in 2010, one of the marketing ideas was to get a real significant uh, plant in there that people would get excited about. So it took Mm -hmm. a long time to get one, and uh, it did bloom in 2018. And over the five days of 2018, we had 17,000 people come through uh, the conservatory at the top of Vancouver there, and, and uh, it was quite a sensation.
0: Wow. How how stinky, tell me about how stinky this plant is. I mean, I have, did not get a chance to go see it last time, so I'll try to get up there, but it's a limited t- window to see it. So tell me, uh, what, how yeah, bad is it's,
1: it? it? Well, it's going to be stinky. Uh, it was stinky last time, but we think it's going to be stronger. Whoa. So it, it releases these smelly compounds, including, uh, it's like a Limburger cheese dunked, dumped in sulfur with rotting fish. <laughs> So uh, it's a Delicious. nasty bit of business, and it's made to attract, it smells like dead rats and rotten cabbage, and it kind of comes in waves. <laughs> Good so, morning, um, everybody. Enjoy your yeah, breakfast. Yeah, yeah. So, but the great thing about it is, you know, it, it, it's a learning experience for people because, you know, we are, the, the rainforests are threatened. Um, most of these are in the Sumatra rainforest, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, certainly we have our temperate rainforest in, in British Columbia, which is also under some threat. So I think it's really people get up there and they start thinking about these things and they start thinking about the environment, maybe a little more and a great learning experience for kids. Um, of course, we're in a little bit of, of a different time. We won't get mm-hmm. 17,000 people through because we're COVID. we're dealing with uh, still you know, safety precautions. So uh, you have to book, um, you have to book your tickets online. So it's uh, Mm www.lodellconservatory.ca. That's where you can get their ticket, your tickets. There'll be groups, I guess you'll have 50 at a time. Uh, Up until Sunday, it'll be uh, hour-long stints. And then as it comes closer to blooming, it'll be 20-minute segments, 50 people at a time. So we want to try and get as many people through to see it, but obviously we want to keep people safe.
0: You said in the top about uh, this as a marketing ploy, and I know you've been involved uh, with the Conservatory for long, for your entire life, I guess, pretty much. Tell me a bit about, you know, why marketing the Conservatory is important.
1: Well, I think it, it was always, uh, you know, conceived in order to connect uh, people to nature and the environment and get us thinking outside, uh, perhaps getting thinking about the whole world. And, uh, you know, I just want to give a shout-out to our park, Operation staff who have looked after this uh this uh corpse flower at sunset nursery so bruce mcdonald who's the superintendent of the nursery amit ganda who's our director of park operations and emma tanaka who's the blodell van dusen garden director it takes a real team because this is has has to have you know special conditions and they really got to look really got to look after it but but boy when people see it they can really appreciate the work that's been done.
0: So, Uncle Fester, Stinky, for sure. Uh, the Bloedel Conservatory, uh, you know, needs more people, um, just on a broad sense. And Queen Elizabeth Park, I want to talk a bit about that because you you were part of the team that saved the conservatory that was potentially going to be, you know, closed down. You put a team together. You guys saved it, and then you were part of as a as a commissioner. You got the roof replaced, which is great. Um, What's next for the conservatory and what's next for Queen Elizabeth Park? To be frank, uh, you know, and park boards had its challenges this term. uh, The park itself around the conservatory could use some work. I mean, there's no real, there's no trail around it. It's kind of a, it feels like it hasn't been really taken care of in a way that you'd think it should have been in, in a number, for a number of years.
1: Well, I mean, we still have the iconic quarry gardens, which are beautifully maintained. And there's the, you know, the fountains on top and certainly Mm -hmm. the Love Locks uh, sculpture, which is a new addition. We have the Henry Moore up there. Mm -hmm. So there's also the Rose Garden, uh, lawn bowling. Uh, There's also, um, you know, pitch and putt golf, tennis courts, pickleball. There's a lot to do at Queen Elizabeth Park. Now, granted, uh, you know, it's, Maybe not quite the shine on it it once mm-hmm. uh, did, but we're certainly trying to work on that. And I know that uh, there are challenges, but the team is working on that. And it is our second largest park, and certainly uh, yeah. people need to get up there and visit it. And I think you know we've seen attendance come up dramatically since those days, uh, twenty ten, when the because two uh, thousand and nine, when the conservatory was threatened, and you know we're getting great attendance prior to COVID and uh Mm -hmm. people were really flocking in there so why isn't there
0: why isn't there a a trail around it why isn't there a trail around the like you can't you have to actually go down to the sidewalk you gotta go in and out of the park unlike stanley park and you as you said it's the second biggest park in our city i don't understand why it doesn't have better trails and in in within the park why has it never been done is there no plan well, there for are,
1: there are a number of trails. There is underway a Queen Elizabeth Park Master Plan process uh-huh. underway.
0: Okay. And there's
1: also an effort by uh, Van Dusen Gardens to actually create an education center at the front of the conservatory, and that's gaining some uh, momentum. So that would be a, a great addition because then, you know, families could really learn about uh, nature. The other thing that a lot of people don't know about Queen Elizabeth Park is that it has every tree species native in Canada in that planted in that park so mm-hmm. it's a it's an arboretum mm-hmm. and I think uh, we could do a better job uh, getting the word out on that and that's certainly why I'm on your show today
0: <laughs> Okay uncle fester can be seen at the at the Bloedel Conservatory for uh, the next few days and then go to uh, bloedelconservatory.ca was that what it was
1: Did Yeah bloedelconservatory.ca and you can book your get your tickets and book your time. And uh, I would encourage everybody to be quick because there's going to be limited tickets and it's quite a phenomena. And uh, I think once you see it and once you smell it, you're not going to forget it. So uh, I hope people get up there. Thanks very much for having me, George. Yeah,
0: thanks, John. Take care. Welcome back. I'm George Affleck, in for Mike Smith today and tomorrow. Mike's back on Monday. I know you've probably missed him. I hope you've been enjoying uh, this time as much as I have. So uh, this hour, we're going to talk a lot about housing. I want to get your your dialing fingers ready for the uh, second half of this half hour to join in with this conversation in Vancouver. You know, it feels like we're always taking we're always talking about housing. We've already uh, talked about it on the show today with Francis Beulah earlier, and about uh, you know the fact that there's all the stuff under the ground that we need to get done in order to build housing, and how that's slowing down things. In his National Post column, <clears throat> the number one reason you'll ever be able to afford a house in Canada. Tristan Hopper theorizes why it's so, uh, in his his column is called, the number one reason, sorry, I get this right, why you'll never be able to afford a house in Canada. Tristan Hopper theorizes why so many people can't get into the housing market. He joins me now. Hey, Tristan. Hello. So, okay, your column title is enticing. That's why I wanted to get it right. So what's, tell me the answer. How do we do it? How can't we do it?
4: Oh, uh, basically you make it easier to build homes. Um, Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody you ask uh, in real estate uh, says, "Well, it's a supply issue." So, um, so actually, when you look at the G seven, so you know, Britain, France, all the other G seven companies, countries not known for their housing affordability or their you know frequent their number of houses, but Mm -hmm. in the rest of the G seven. Canada has the lowest number of homes per capita of any other country. So it it just follows from that that we're going to have an affordability crisis because if you took anything that we don't have a lot of, it drives up the price. Um, So Canada, despite our massive size and the fact that we have basically unlimited wood. um, And a big space,
3: a lot of space. There's a
4: bunch of man-made reasons, essentially. We aren't building houses, and that causes a rush on the houses that remain.
0: So let me get it clear. Those homes per capita... That means you know, like the percentage of people who live here don't we don't have homes. So, like, the, so it's a, so it is a supply issue.
4: Um, so, so basically, so I think the next lowest is the UK. So, again, the UK not known for its housing affordability. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were to get to their rate of homes per capita, we would have to build another two hundred and fifty thousand homes, which I looked it up is almost exactly the number of homes in the city of Vancouver. So that's quite a lot. So we're really behind. Uh, we need to be building homes. We need to be densifying. We need to be doing a whole bunch of things. But as anybody who has done anything real estate related knows, um, that's a giant pain in the butt in basically every jurisdiction in Canada.
0: Yeah, I thought your article was interesting because you actually had nice visuals on the online version uh, with uh, layering of the cities. And you showed the single family homes uh, and the zoning capacity. It was interesting. Tell me a bit about that.
4: Uh, Yeah, so I'd say the most compelling image is actually one of Vancouver. And uh, this is the UBC sociology department did a zoning map. So they just found all of the different zoning across Vancouver. And then the color yellow is for single family or duplex, which means it's illegal to build anything that isn't a detached home or a duplex in these areas. And that's most of Vancouver. So, yeah, you're looking at one of the most unaffordable housing markets, certainly in Canada, uh, almost in the world. And you're saying, well, most of the available land, if you want to build something, you know, you just want to, you know, turn your backyard, into a tiny home, uh, that's this giant red tape pain in the ass. Right. Um, so yeah, most places, if you build anything that isn't a single family home, you go to jail. So yeah, a, to build <laughs> a bit of a stretch. Bit of a stretch. Homes we need. Yeah.
0: So you use San Francisco as well as an example, and it was quite similar. And I thought it was interesting because the former city planner in Vancouver, Gil Kelly came to Vancouver from San Francisco and obviously didn't solve the problem while he was here uh, that we have. But San Francisco was just as bad or worse than Vancouver.
4: Yeah, there's this satellite image that I included in the story. And it was surprising because it, it came out. It was an unrelated thing. Like, oh, here's San Francisco. And then people were looking at it and saying, this is ridiculous. Like, it's because it's, you've got a small bit of downtown if you look at San mm-hmm. Francisco from above where there's skyscrapers. And stuff, but most of it is a low-density suburb. So you're like, this is the most unaffordable housing uh, market uh, in the entire United States. Like, if you've been doing that for 10 or 20 years and you're the center of the world tech industry, it should start looking like New York or at least Paris. Uh, like, uh-huh. it should have a bunch of five story. Barcelona or,
0: yeah, or anywhere you can think of yeah, those European cities. Yeah, it's just
4: all the, the full house house everywhere, and that's why no one can live anywhere.
0: Well, what I do know about San Francisco is, in some similarities, is this uh, NIMBY, YIMBY, the, but the NIMBYs, the, not in my backyard, a very strong movement there. They're very political. They're able to get things done. F- somewhat similar, and it seems to be a stronger force in Vancouver year after year that people just, these neighborhood groups really don't want change. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you have the opposite, the yes in my backyard, uh, they call them, the YIMBYs, uh, who are saying, no, we need to do what you're talking about. So is this a, an issue when we have this not-in-my-backyard groups getting so much influence over political uh, decision-making?
4: Yeah, and then you have the YIMBYs who say they're YIMBYs, but they're actually NIMBYs. Um, <laughs> that, that's the thing. Everybody says, uh, yeah, I want uh, affordable housing. I want a place for people to live. You know, No one is actually going to stand up and say, Um, I don't want anybody else to live here and I want to rig the system so that my house just gains value at just this obscenely high rate and then I cash out and buy an island in New Brunswick somewhere. (laughs) No one's actually going to say that, um, but they are effectively supporting policies uh, that do that. So you will see this. Like I'm I'm speaking to you from Victoria. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents live in one of those just old people condos. um, And yeah, everybody will say, oh, we need affordable housing. I'm fine with people. I like diverse neighborhoods. And then next door. Um, there's like an old motel that's being torn down and they're putting up like a, just a modest eight story development. totally fits with the neighborhood. And they're all like, Oh, we got to go to like the public hearing and vote this down and get it quashed and blah, blah, (laughs) blah, 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 And make it it, this giant pain in the ass. So it's little things like that. Just if you can't accept like just the most baseline, like, you know, there are people in Victoria, they need homes um, and housing prices are going up to like 20% year over year. Um, and if you can't accept just an eight story building in downtown Victoria, um, yeah, you are disincentivizing all number of developments that could be driving down housing prices.
0: You know, I live in Yale Town, and I don't live in the tower, but I live in the podium section. Uh, and and generally, I always found it I always found it funny when people say an eight story building, a building a tower in my neighborhood. And I'm like, I got tower. I got a tower, I got four towers around me, and they're all 40 stories high. That's a tower. Eight stories is, uh, you know, a simple walk-up kind of unit that you would expect in most European cities. Even Toronto has more of those. You look at uh, Montreal, and you look at that downtown, uh, and the density that they've managed to jam into that small area is significantly higher than here.
4: Yeah, or or even just, um, you know, if you've got a three-story home and you just want to, like— um, mark off each of the story each of the stories, and that 's going to be a separate floor and you know separate addresses, something mm-hmm. very simple like that um that 's a huge pain in the ass in a lot of cities uh, you know that's that's sitting before city council that 's getting an approval that 's getting this designation uh, oh that 's not allowed in that neighborhood and now you've got to listen to your neighbors with their all petty grievances. Um, So this is actually a solution that could be solved. I mean, in the 70s, we did have affordable housing in this country. Mm -hmm. And it's basically because we overbuilt um, and and prices were able to to drop. That's why Vancouver was so cheap in the early 1980s. So this is, I mean, the analogy I used in the video was, Uh, So we buy 2 million cars a year in Canada. Mm -hmm. If you put in a bunch of pain in the ass government restrictions, that meant we could only buy 1 million cars per year, which is essentially what we're doing with housing. Just, uh, you know, you can't have the amount of houses you would want because we've got these restrictions on what you can build. So if we did that with cars, yeah, you would see insane prices on cars. Your Ford Festiva would be (laughs) selling at like 45,000 and gaining like, you know, 10 to 15% per year.
0: Yeah. Do you have a Ford Fensive? Is that what you drive? Because I think you had a picture of that. Is that your no, car?
4: no, I drive a Jetta. But uh, <laughs> yeah, my Jetta would be, it'd be like Cuba. We would just have, uh, you know, 1960s, wildly yeah, overpriced Fords. 50s cars that we're sort of uh, sticking to. So, we, it, houses are acting like any other market, or, or lumber. I mean, lumber was super expensive at the beginning of the summer. Mm-hmm. Because it was expensive, a, a bunch of mills, like, fell over themselves to reopen and churn out as much lumber as possible, and that brought down the price. You can't do that with houses. Like, oh, people want houses, we should build houses. Uh, you can't, sorry. <laughs>
0: One of is political will, though. You look at I look at Vancouver Council or most councils, but certainly Vancouver, they're all talking. We need affordability, 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 more housing, more housing, and yet they make then they spend their entire uh, time over the last three years uh, voting on things that are totally unrelated to housing and just blocking up uh, the bureaucracy, slowing things down for everyone on every capa- every area, um, and making it more unaffordable in the city. There's a you know, there's they they seem to talk out of both sides of their mouth. Uh,
4: yeah, yeah, because uh, I mean. I I think it's one of the most insidious contributors to housing and affordability because we can all hate foreign capital. Uh, uh, Damn foreigners, get out Mm -hmm. of my city. That's that's easy. Um, But uh, in this one, yeah, you do have a bunch of people who I think sort of quietly like it. Because um, if you live in Vancouver or Toronto and you've owned a home since 1981, uh, you've essentially won the lottery Mm -hmm. uh, because of a regulatory system that is rigged in your favor. Um so you're quietly either not gonna care or, you know, you're gonna actively support. Uh so we we've been doing this for so long, like 10, 20 years, a lot of our economy is now structured around the idea that uh real estate, you know, surges um in this just absolutely un- uncontrollable way. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, if you're going to be changing that, it's going to mean disrupting a lot of people who have sort of pegged their livelihood and uh, you know, potentially a lot of their income on this system. So um yeah, I, again, we all like to talk affordability. You know, I want people to have a place to live and to have healthy cities. Um, but when it comes down to, oh, here's what we actually have to do to create that. It's like, oh, it's no, no, you're going to disrupt some of the things that you find safe and, and comfortable. Um, maybe yeah. you'll have to push back. Well, well people are saying, they'll say, oh, we'll have affordable housing. You know, put, we'll put the homeless people in hotels like that's That's what happens here in Mm -hmm. the city of Victoria. Yeah, here too. Affordable housing is just like finding homes for the homeless. It's like, okay, well, that's That's, a few hundred people on the street. I'm talking about tens of thousands of new Canadians and young people who do not have a 250,000
0: is what you you mentioned. So, Tristan, stay with me. I want to take some calls after the break. You're going to stay with me? Sure. George Affleck in for Mike Smith and Tristan Hopper, who's written a very provocative column in uh, the National Post, Post stays with me for taking taking your calls at 604 280 9898. 604 280 9898. we got uh, Joe from Vancouver. Go ahead, Joe.
4: Hey, guys. Thanks for taking the call. Yeah. Um, hey, I just wanted to say thank you for writing us. Uh, for years, we just keep hearing how we've got to tax foreigners, we've got to tax people that have unoccupied, vacant, you know, recreational homes. I'm so glad to see someone holding up a mirror to politicians' faces and saying, hey, maybe you should look in this about your permitting issues, et cetera. I'm also curious, uh, you know, certainly I I would agree that it all applies to Vancouver and Toronto, but with respect to our friends on the prairies, um, Vancouver's not Winnipeg. So (laughs) does the same sort of thing apply there? All right,
0: thanks, Joe. Tristan, go ahead. Your thought, a little love there. That's nice, huh?
4: Uh, yeah, so, so I haven't done a c- city by city comparison, but I, I can provide a comparison like within my, my own backyard. So I'm in the city of Victoria, which is like, uh, we have like 400 plus zoning classifications, some of which have been only been used once. And if oh. you have to change one, uh, for any individual property, I mean, that's the whole thing, like legal fees and whatever, and maybe it'll be rejected and it only lasts for a few years. Versus uh, Langford, just north of us, which for many years has been the fastest growing community in Canada and was very much formed in reaction to that. People can't afford, can't, uh, afford homes in Victoria, so Langford, which used to be sort of a rural municipality, said, okay, we're just going to doze all the forest and create places where it's easy for families to build homes. So they'll just sort hmm. of do block zoning. Just, okay, this whole neighborhood is, you know, this level of zoning, and it's usually quite dense. And boom, there, go build a house. Um, So as a result, yeah, almost all of the growth is happening in Langford. Um, Now, as a result, we have a a crazy, ridiculous traffic problem on the, like, very Uh thin highway that connects us to Langford. But, uh, yeah, they've provided a model of how you can develop and densify properly.
0: Interesting. Okay, thanks, Joe. Uh, Over to you, Ken from Vancouver. Your thoughts?
2: Um, Thanks very much for taking my call. I agree with Joe. And um, here's the solution that I propose that nobody talks about. Immediately change the bylaws to allow a secondary suite in every single family home, and here's the key point, without requiring a development permit application. Uh So just make people get permits to, you know, whatever they have to do to the electrical and the plumbing Mm. to allow for that. This is wisdom born of pain. I won't share the long, sad story. It's a mortgage helper.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally, Ken. Thanks. You know what?
2: That, to go yeah, ahead, yeah, absolutely, go, and yeah. they could do that tomorrow.
0: All right, thanks, Ken. Uh, great idea. Let's jump to Paul. We've got a lot of calls here, Tristan, so uh, go to Paul from Fraser Valley. Go ahead,
1: Paul. I, I think this whole mess, uh, it could easily have been predicted. It, it's like a game of Monopoly where you give everybody some cash and you're surprised that the bidding on Park Place goes up. Serve <laughs> all the government stimulus money that's gone into every sector... And then the ALR, which rips out half of the supply, if not more. Surprise, demand is exceeding supply. (laughs) What
0: do you think was going to happen? Thanks, Paul. That's an interesting metaphor. uh, Like playing Monopoly, but adding more players, but not adding a bigger board.
4: (laughs) Yeah. uh, First of all, he's playing Monopoly correctly. Most people don't actually know that you are supposed to bid on properties if someone refuses (laughs) to buy it. So that actually makes the game more interesting. Uh, Anyway, and then secondarily, yeah. Uh, another thing I haven't mentioned, so I'm just mentioning the one overarching problem. Because yeah. um, one thing, so we mentioned foreign capital a lot. New Zealand actually has pretty strict laws against foreign capital, but they actually, their uh, real estate is more out of control than ours. Hmm. Um, so yeah, even when you don't have a bunch of foreign money coming in and buying a Yeltsin, uh, you
0: the can solve this problem. Yeah, it's not the magic solution. Real quick, James yeah. from White Rock, got about 10 seconds. Go ahead.
1: I think that the city and the province, not just with the red tape for the permitting and everything else, I think that the city artificially inflates the prices of the properties with mm. the assessments that they do on homes. Mm. I think that I think that when they they do the assessment, they're doing an assessment even on retail space for air above a place so they yeah, can get more tax base. I mean, they, they they shoot themselves in the foot, and then they blame everybody right. else for it, and say we need more money.
0: Okay, that's a good point. I mean, you know, I don't know, James. I appreciate that call, real quick, Tristan. Get five seconds. What do you want to say, that?
1: Uh, I, that's something
4: I've looked into here. I'm I'm not so sure what the situation is in Vancouver, but right. uh, you know,
0: yeah. it's worth looking into. Okay, thanks, Tristan. I appreciate the the joining me this half hour.
4: Thank you.